Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm talking with Catherine Berger-Kay. Kathy is president of CBK Associates, ABCD Books, and travels globally to provide professional development on the likes of service learning, 21st century competencies, and environmental sustainability. She's also the author of The Complete Guide to Service Learning, Going Blue and Make a Splash, which are student guides to protecting our oceans, lakes, rivers, and wetlands. In addition, she also has authored a range of books for the How to Take Action series, which is aimed at guiding students through the issues of hunger, homelessness, and climate change, to name but a few. In the conversation, we discuss how Kathy reflects in her own practice and to what extent can we expect students to follow our example when it comes to reflecting well. The MISO method and elements of it which younger students typically need more guidance with. How and why to combine units and work towards a service goal at some stage within the curriculum direct, indirect, research and advocacy service styles and the advice Cathy would give in terms of the practicalities of establishing direct opportunities for service, the dangers of voluntourism and how to develop an asset-based mindset in students doing service, where the schools need to see the way they interact with local service and international service on a sliding scale in terms of age and experience, and finally, what advice Cathy would give educators who aren't sure where to start when it comes to adapting the curriculum to integrate service. Thanks again to Cathy, who is nothing short of a legend in this field for speaking with me today. I was overjoyed to have some time to pose the questions, which you may pick up on uh, through my sometimes overzealous phrasing of the questions themselves. Uh, all of Kathy's books uh, and courses mentioned will, of course, be linked in the show notes. And I'd strongly encourage you to consider these first when developing your knowledge of service in the curriculum. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Okay, Kathy. Um, so you're a big advocate for meaningful reflection. How do you reflect in your own practice, in, in your own job and, and life and such? And to what extent can we expect students to follow our example when it comes to reflecting well? Do they need to be taught in a, in a different way to the way that we personally reflect? Or what would what, what's your opinion on that? That's a great question, Chris. You know, when I, when I talk about reflection in workshops and such, I remind people that I actually ask that question, how do you reflect in your own life? And for me personally, I see that I reflect quite often when I'm cooking. It's a quiet time for me uh, when I take walks um, and actually in the shower. Those are my three best ways to reflect, I've discovered. Um, And so I'll ask teachers in a workshop that same question, how do you reflect? And they have all kinds of ways from sitting quietly in a chair, exercising, driving, uh, having a tea or a little bit of wine. I mean, listening to music. There's so many ways that we reflect in our own lives. However, we limit how students learn or think about reflection by really having them mainly write off a prompt and giving them a specific amount of time and often saying, are you done yet? Are you done yet? As opposed to letting them really work through it in a way they want or edit the question or prompt to be more personally meaningful, which I think is at least the bottom line of what we should be doing, 
or we have them have a conversation. And very often teachers try to squeeze in reflection as it as a must, I must do this rather than seeing the true value of it. So I think as implied by your question, reflection with students should be much more like how we reflect. I, I've recommended to teachers that, you know, if you like to drink tea and reflect over a cup of tea, get a tea set up in the cafeteria one afternoon and you know, as you and and class a little early and go down there and sit and have tea and talk about whatever you've been doing in class in a more reflective way, or take a walk with students, have students grab a partner, just take a walk on the field for 20 minutes at the end of a class or the end of a semester after a test so they can process and really do let them know how you reflect. Uh, Let that be something luxurious because I do think children are born that we are born reflectors. I think that it's innate to us. And what we want to do is get out of the way of the process and give students enough different options on how to reflect, because for me, I, I quote, I'm quoting myself in an article I wrote on reflection called Meaningful Reflection, which I like a lot. And that article, I say that the purpose of reflection is not to reflect, but to become reflective. Mm-hmm. So that we really have to integrate this in how we teach and how we are with other people so that it really comes to life and is much more vivid. Yeah, that that really resonates with, I'm sure it resonates with everyone, the idea of reflecting when you're cooking or, or yeah, shower driving or something like that. And it's, yeah, that, that, again, the walking thing as well. Often I don't really think about my practice as a teacher until I'm sat with my wife, who's also a teacher and we're chatting about something. I think, Oh, actually that is why. Okay. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Whereas sometimes we do treat it more like it's almost like an interview, isn't it? You're probably not going to come up with your best ideas when you're forced to answer a question like in an interview process it's much more when it's more relaxed and right. drinking a tea or something like that <laughs> yeah when it's much more natural and i think yeah. with students when we impose it all the time and we do we're not letting that genuine sensibility come come up and the other thing is we're dictating how and when reflection should happen i think we should really once students have a sense of what reflection might be for them let them be on the lookout for moments of significance that's often what i recommend is what is a significant moment that calls us to reflection to mm-hmm. cause to reflect and if students could be on the look at it for that then they might say wait yeah um Mr. Jordan we we should stop right now because what he just said really took me someplace else I need to think about that so if if students understand that we're on the lookout for moments that give us goosebumps or make us really pause or make us want to go tell someone or make us feel up or down or all the different range of things that can happen to inspire that moment of significance, then I think we're getting closer to what reflection really is and let students design it, shape it ultimately so that they know this is their practice, not just our imposed set of directives. Mm, absolutely. Um, the, so an, another thing that you've you've written on quite extensively and you've introduced to, I don't know, countless people around the world is is this, this MISO method when it comes to researching during inquiry. I, I don't think it's too far to say that it's probably a world-renowned approach now. Um, for anyone who, who isn't aware of the MISO approach, can you give us like a brief overview of what it is, Kathy? And also, which elements of it do younger students, so maybe, you know, I'm thinking more middle school students, I suppose, typically need more guidance with? And how can educators best help them with that? Well, I love talking about the MISO method of action research. And um, I do write about it in my book, and I did originate it, which is 
when I think about how it is, like you're saying, used in so many parts of the world, I'm thrilled because this this will last, you know, forever because it's such a great technique. Because students typically think that we research by Google, but Google is a search engine. To research means to look again and add to the body of knowledge. So MISO represents four different styles of doing research using media, which can, of course, include the internet, but it can also include maps, which I love, books, podcasts, like you're doing, um, blogs, photographs, billboards, things written on a t-shirt, any form of media. An interview is with a person who's got a level of expertise on a topic. And we're so fortunate because of you know, the internet, we can interview people all over the globe. And I've interviewed, for example, 40 authors about why they wrote their books, because that's something I'm interested in. And I've written about that. So people do love that interchange. So finding an expert to interview. And when you do interview an expert, you often find content that's not even on the internet yet. And then survey is when you're asking maybe 10 people who run food banks or people who were just walking down the street to ask their opinion. So it's a different style of questioning and really builds good question asking skills. And O is for observation or experience where we set up, we want always want students to be more observant of what's around them. So for example, rather than writing home from school, looking at their cell phone, they might look out the window and and consider how many stray dogs they see. So we want them to be more observant always. So it's, it's interesting when you just asked me which element would be best with younger students. I thought you were going to say kindergarten. Oh, okay. And I have the same answer for kindergarten as I do for middle school or high school or university. And that's all of them. The only thing is you just review them more one at a time when their kids are younger. So for example, if I'm if I'm doing a unit on energy with middle school students, I'll stick with middle school because that's what you brought up. Let's say we're doing an, um, a unit on energy. I'm asking you now, Chris, which which of the four methods would be best to use if you're studying energy? Suppose, I mean, you could make an argument for all of them, really. But I mean, observation comes to mind straight away in terms of the sure. way that we expend energy and stuff. But yeah. Right. So they might do focus on observation doing energy as a focal point, but still use some of the others, but make observation the most. And then if the next unit has to do with, let's say, refugees, maybe they want to do more interviews. Mm. So you can highlight so that during the course of the year, they have exposure to all of them and call that and you do the same thing with kindergartners. You give a kindergarten kid a clipboard, you gave them power. They can go survey mm -hmm. anybody. Uh, so <laughs> that's a tr that's a fact. So um, it's just how you do it so that as students, for example, if they were learning this, you know, individually and then combining them in different ways, all through grades six to 10, for example, when they get to their extended essay, using MISO to do their extended essay in a diploma program would be natural for them to say, well, I can't just use the internet. I'm going to interview people. They would really embrace this as a very concrete and effective way to do research. And you can use this all the way. Through. I've taught this at universities because there's such little research, real research going on. Plus, you don't want your professor or your teacher to know everything you're writing about. And by adding, you can add humor when you're interviewing someone. So anyway, it, it's these are really great strategies. I have a lot of free resources to download on my website about it. So um, MISO is the way to go. Yeah, 100%. I think uh, particularly the idea of interview survey, 
an observation that the the leap to Google is often like very quick and Google definitely mm-hmm. is a powerful tool. But um, I know that I, I saw Dan Willingham a, a few months ago post about like an upcoming book that's going to come out. I don't think he's written it, but um, the, the authors escaped me now. And it's a book about like how students should be using the internet effectively to yeah, do research absolutely. and just, just the pure premise of that underlines how, although an incredibly powerful tool, it's not necessarily the be all and end all. And sometimes it is better just to get the kids to go and interview their grandparents about the idea of, you know, where do we come from and, you know, what kind of culture or background do we have rather than Googling that it seems like much more powerful to kind of approach people in your immediate community sometimes, but well, there was um, a chem- yeah. chemist. I just want to add this one note. There was a chemistry teacher who the students were going to be uh, painting um, some murals to go on the ceilings in rooms in hospitals, some quote art for hospital rooms. This is a longer story, but they were so concerned about the the paint. And though it said non-toxic, they wanted to make sure that it would be okay for a hospital. So they called the company and they interviewed a chemist. Now, the teacher says she'd been teaching chemistry for 18 years and never had the students talk to a chemist. So that's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Mm-hmm. So why couldn't we interview a statistician if we're studying statistics to really understand how they use it? The thing is, at these, and many of the, your listeners may be at international schools, and there's so many people you're connected to. Yeah. All over the world. So we can harness that energy and that knowledge and students will get so excited by learning this way. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, the uh, Another thing that you've kind of obviously written extensively on, um, Kathy, is the, the idea of service, I guess. Um, and one thing I've heard you um, uh, speak about and also I've, I've seen you write about is this idea that um, you, you can maybe combine units and work towards a service goal at some stage. So um, to reword this question, I think one thing that I think teachers see in terms of when they come into like an IB school or, or I suppose any kind of um, school, but in my personal experience, it's, it's IB and they know that, you know, the gold standard or an, an amazing thing to aim for is can we make the assessment or the endpoint somehow tied to um service but one thing i've heard you speak about before is the idea that the service can be like ongoing it doesn't have to be at the end of the unit in fact if you put it at the end of the unit it can often be um you know it can feel like it's not the 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 most important element of the of the of the sequence i suppose something like that and an even more interesting thing that i i saw you or listened to you speak about was the idea that why can't multiple units add up to the point where you do a service at the end it doesn't have to be you know unit one service one unit two service two so to speak um so what do you see as the most beneficial approach when it comes to combining service within um, the academic curriculum meaningfully? There's so much you just said. So I'm going to just unpack it. Just no, it's great that my mind is just really, just really going uh, in wonderful directions. I've luckily been taking a few notes. Um, so there's a, there's a lot going on here. One of the the things to, I'll just briefly say is that for me, when people want to do something with service. Um, and add that as a key component of their class, they can get very overwhelmed. I see this a lot. Like, how am I going to do all this and add service? And so I think when we can really kind of take a deep breath, literally, and look at how 
the five stages of service learning can, just as you're describing, extend over more than one unit, we don't feel the time pressure, which is what teachers often say. It's just too much pressure. I don't know how to do everything. So so what I often model when I do you know, on-site visits or even remote uh, helping remotely help people learn how to develop service learning units within their curriculum is that, for example, if you're doing an all about me unit is the first unit, um, that's a great time to do the stage of investigation. Because uh, just as a quick note for the listeners, there are five stages of service learning, investigation, preparation, action, reflection, and demonstration. So if you're investigating, knowing about yourself, that's a great way to start. So rather than trying to do an entire service learning experience in that first unit, you might really focus on in the investigation stage, learn more about yourself, issues you care about. And then as you move into the second unit, let's say it's about the natural world, that's a great place to, to with MISO to really do a lot of observation, but to really do preparation for taking action. Mm. Uh, so, so that you don't have to like, oh my gosh, I didn't finish it here. No, you don't need to. You can take the investigation, then move it into preparation. And now what you're also doing is connecting the learning across the whole year, which is such so connected to brain research, which says that students are looking for connectivity in the brain, not here's a unit, there's a unit, there's a unit. So what we do is we really connect things in a really, I'll say the word holistic, but I really mean in a really intentional and purposeful way. And that really elevates things. So if let's say they did in our natural world, they might find that there's an area of the school that's just uh, really would be ideal for growing something, or that could be prepared as a, some kind of uh, water garden or some kind of place for certain animals to thrive. So that could end up taking action there. Or maybe in the third unit is about energy, which we talked about before, and they really do a whole thing about energy reduction. So you could have over three units have investigation, preparation, leading to action and demonstration reflection in the third unit. And maybe the fourth unit is something that would be ideal to do the whole thing. And with students having one or two experiences of service learning, really good service learning following these five stages, they're going to really know what the method is because it's real important to include them in knowing what these stages are. And they're going to really be able to be much more of a leader or facilitator or collaborator in doing meaningful work both on their own and in other classes. So I, I, I try to take the pressure off so that people can see the possibilities and also, I do think it's better education when we connect our units rather than have them all these separate standing yeah. kinds of silos. Yeah, I think transfer is 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 a is a big yeah. thing. Yeah, a hundred percent. And the the pressure, the word pressure there, I think is is very apt as well. If you were to tell, if you were just to kind of look at the IB guide or to um, look at the expectations of the MYP in in isolation, then maybe you would feel the pressure to meet all these expectations. But speaking to an expert such as yourself or, you know, an MYP coordinator in your school, if if you've got one of those or, a, you know, a DP coordinator, I think that's fantastic advice. This idea that you're building towards something. It's not that you, you know, need to fit it in every which way is possible. I think just like you're, whenever you're teaching a student anything, you wouldn't start with the most kind of uh, challenging or, or uh, difficult element at the very beginning of the year, you would obviously build up to the point where they mm -hmm. have like um, cumulatively learned all the different skills and knowledge that they need and processes that they need um, to to enact that kind of I don't know final piece of the. Um, well, the there was. Program. 
there was one school I was working with and they had six units. We, were, we just looked at them all. And the last one had to do with weather. But when I looked at the, the five prior units, they all had elements of weather in them. So to wait to talk about weather at the end, you've missed a whole cycle of weather as it changes wherever you live. So I just showed them how if you bring it to the beginning and you keep weaving in weather as you move through these units, by the end, they're weather experts and they can do something much more dramatic and impactful that either teaches other people or sets something up or actually takes really meaningful action because they've been seeing how weather is part of the condition of natural elements or in art and outside installations. There were just so many, once teachers started seeing it, they went crazy. Oh my gosh, changes everything. And they get so excited and reinvigorated about learning. And so, and that's what I'm looking for is how do we make sure our teachers are getting that sense of dynamic reinvigoration of yeah. and excitement for what we're doing. We've been through a lot over the last few years, and it's real important that we really take care of our teachers as well as our students so they can do their best work. Mm, yeah, I agree. Um, so another another paradigm that you've sort of advised on for the IB um, directly, and I know, um, Kathy, is this idea of like the different types of service, so to speak. So this paradigm of uh, direct, indirect research and advocacy. I think it's a really great way to conceptualize service options as teachers or classes. Um, but what would you advise um, in terms of the practicalities of establishing direct opportunities for service? I think a lot of what we do already, um, or certainly in my experience, is is more of the advocacy thing or um, more of the um, sort of research elements. And we have a lot of indirect things in school. Like, luckily, I work in a school which is fantastic in terms of raising money for the recent earthquake in Syria, for example, or more local causes as well around refugees and and, and um, teenage pregnancy and stuff. But yeah, to come back to the question, what would you advise in terms of the practicalities of establishing direct opportunities for service? Well, I think it's really critical that we examine every possibility to do that whenever we can. Mm-hmm. There's there's a hazard I often warn, warn about, comes with a hazard sign, um, is that if we're only doing indirect service, especially if it only relates to doing money, then what we're teaching students is that they can keep everything at arm's length and just put a check towards it yeah. and not get personally involved. And I think that could, in some cases, create some harm. I'm not saying it always does. I'm not saying that at all. But unless we have an awareness of what we're doing about that, it could be creating a a certain bias and create a larger us and them kind of category. Like we have, they don't, we have to put money in there. And I I think that's problematic. Um, It's very important that we take an asset-based model. We do service and we look at what's going well in places as opposed to always look at the deficit model. That's another conversation perhaps, but it's also a key part of this. So when we look at these four different types of taking action, um, in every circumstance where students are are looking at a topic, for example, with re- we'll take you mentioned refugees. Um, I once students get ready to start thinking, what kind of action might we take? I challenge them always to think of what would be a direct opportunity, what might be indirect, what could be advocacy, what could be research. So that they they think it all for, and then you might be practicing. Well, which ones can we do, given the amount of time we have, or the where people are located? All those things we have to consider. But we want people to be thinking in that way, um, so that and and always 
not always to think that it has to put money at things in order to be indirect. For example, maybe the website for an organization serving refugees is lacking on some information and students could do some research to give that organization so they can boost up their website. Or you have students talented enough to actually create a better website for them. That's a different kind of indirect. There were some students in Shanghai who found out that an uh, organization in Southern China was helping with um, left behind children. And so they needed books on different topics. And the children wrote books. They asked them to make them small that they could fit in a child's pocket. They made like 40 of the most wonderful little books in English and Chinese. So it doesn't always have to be money. I think we have to really move away from that as the only only option. And we have to look at ways that we can connect with people even virtually if we can't get there because of different kinds of situations. But what can we do? What things are in our own backyard that we can meet with people um, and interact with them. So we build, there's so much that can happen when we work with people, with the planet directly or with animals that you can't get if you're just delivering something or not interacting. So I think we have to look at that as part of our responsibility. In the same way, getting on an airplane and flying somewhere to do service in a locale without looking at what you could do in your own neighborhood or own backyard I think is um, a problem. And um, I even heard a, a really strong service advocate in Argentina say that. She said, there are too many kids who are, have wealth and privilege who would rather get on a plane and go fly somewhere to do service than taking action in our own community. So we really have to look at those biases and see what we're doing and why. And whether we go somewhere else, that's really service or that's really investigation to learn about other cultures and communities. So I think there's a lot a lot in this topic that we need to unpack. Um, but I do think aiming for direct service when we can is really important. And then adding the other layers when we need to have to or want to is really the way to go. Mm, you, and you, you bring up a really salient point there that leads me on to my next question, Kathy, around the idea of going abroad to do these services. We've had this kind of inconvenient um, or this sort of timely, I don't know if it's convenient or inconvenient in terms of reflecting on the way that we um, you know, use the aviation industry and we're flying off to here, there and everywhere with COVID basically landing the entire planet's kind of fleet of planes. Um, I wonder whether now that we personally, like in Hong Kong as well, we've only just really come out of uh, one of the world's strictest quarantines about six months ago and the masks are off now and it's lovely. But as a school uh, and as a as a city, I suppose we're all kind of now considering are we going to get on a plane anytime soon and go two hours to Thailand? Or are we going to go, if it's a service opportunity, for example, if it's if we're talking about schools rather than holidays, is it really kind of ethically okay to fly to Australia or fly to Japan or somewhere like that when, as you say, there are local causes um, that, that, that need attention too? And there's been some discussion in recent years about the dangers of voluntourism. And looking at your work and thinking about your work, that seems to chime a lot with um, your kind of dissuasion of seeing service situations as like a, with a deficit model. Uh, you, you talked about the asset um, model a, a moment ago. Um, how do we go about ensuring that students provide benefits to a service situation, whether it's abroad or, or in um, the particular locale that we find ourselves in? Um, how can we make sure that they're not coming at it from a deficit model and instead of establishing um, or recognizing rather the existing assets that any such community has? 
I think we that's where the MISO method really is mm. so strong is where we go into community and we use all these different methods to learn about that community. Uh, we interview people, we observe, we do surveys, we do all the different ways to learn in a much more authentic way rather than Googling what's going on in a place because it's just not the same. Uh, a colleague of mine, Andy Dorn, uh, was a while ago now, uh, teaches at NIST and he took students to a remote area in, I believe it was Cambodia. And they spent, they spent you know, a week there doing investigation. And when they came back to school, they realized they had to go back and do it again. That investigation to learn about others in respectful and mutually mutual ways takes time. Um, and so we, and that's really wonderful because that's what we really want. We really want students to learn about others. You know, we don't want students to leave a service experience, go, oh, I'm so glad I don't live like that. Uh, we want them to leave that service experience amazed by the the ingenuity, the creativity, the way people work together, which may be lacking in their own experience. So we, unless we go in and say, well, what's going well here? And that's the question to ask. And, and the other thing that's real important is I've yet to go to a school, and I've been to schools all over the world, where students knew what the word assets meant. They don't know the word asset. So we have to say, what's an asset? I remember asking students at one school in uh, Singapore, what's an asset? And they gave me all the learner profiles back. And I said, okay, now what's an asset? <laughs> imagine going into a poor community, the poorest community you can imagine, what are still the assets there? And they said, oh, the history that people bring with them, the different languages they speak, their respect and interaction with nature. Yes, all these wonderful things. So we go there and we get to see these things in real life. And we realize that having a cell phone is not the end all be all of existence that there are other ways to connect and be part of nature and be part of a community. And we start seeing how people really work together and that we're always, whenever we go somewhere, whether it's locally or on a plane, we are their guest. We're not there to save them. We may not even be there to help them. We're there to learn from and with them so that we can find meaningful, mutual ways to take action together. So I'm not there to fix you there to learn together so we can do something that matters that benefits both of us. So when students start understanding what assets are, then they can open their eyes to seeing them. And um, they're there. There's so much there. And then it, it changes, it shifts the conversation. So I like it when students use MISO to find out the assets, and then they can use MISO to find out the needs. But in doing that, you're building real meaningful partnerships and relationships. And to me, service and service learning is really all about relationships. A hundred percent. Yeah, I completely agree. Weirdly, so strangely, kind of, um, I think I've met Andy um, that you, you spoke about. I, I went on the exact same trip, um, uh, but with a previous school that I used to work at in Hong Kong. And their NIST... And the group that yeah. he took with them happened to be there at the same time. And it was a massive wake up call in terms of the way that we'd set up to go and, you know, um, ex experience kind of service amongst that particular community just outside CM Reap. And I spoke right. to Andy oh, for about 30, 45 minutes. And I was, I was a relatively young teacher at the time, but um, I was blown away. I was, I was, you know, embarrassed by like how little, I knew and 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 how kind of naive I was and stuff like that. But we then went back next year and and we we obviously 
couldn't emulate um, what what Andy and, and Nis were doing quite as well. We, we we tried to follow in their footsteps. But what was even more amazing was that Vet, who was the um, Cambodian guy who led the the tour at the time, had completely taken on all of these um, procedures and, and, and approaches that that Andy had kind of introduced, and he was then introducing them to every other. American, Japanese, Chinese school that that came through the village. So, I think that particular approach that that you mention is 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 really valuable. It kind of strikes a chord with both the local people like that and and with other you know teachers like myself. So, um, well, I do have to say that the company that Vat worked for was then called Buffalo Tours. It's not yes. called that. Anymore. No, and they so, brought me in to teach uh-huh. them all. This stuff. So I had done workshops with Vat and all the other leaders. So they knew. <laughs> They knew about personal inventory. They knew the five stages. Um, so they, they, that was, um, it's fellow Graham Harper was running it at the time. I, Graham and Andy happened to be friendly and I just saw them both in Bangkok a couple of weeks ago, actually. But, um, they, they realized the importance of their guides knowing this so that it would really not just be service, it'd be service learning and it would be done with mutual respect. And so, um, I'm thrilled to hear that you were able to see that firsthand, but that's, that's part of the difference. If you're just getting on a plane and going somewhere and you don't that have that kind of depth of understanding and preparation from your guides or your hosts, it can be a little bit hard. And and it can, and it's nothing wrong with just doing a cultural immersion experience, but it may not be meaningful or worthwhile service. Yeah, hundred um, percent. T- sticking with this idea of um, you know, doing service abroad. In your opinion, Kathy, do you think there needs to be um, a sliding scale, so to speak, in terms of age or experience with regard to when we send students um, abroad? Is it is it, for example, that if we're sticking with the middle school example, the year sevens, the year eights, the year nine should stick in in Hong Kong and and understand the local communities and then maybe move further afield? What what would be your opinion on that? I, I think absolutely. I, I know that a lot of people like to take young people abroad early and and it's it's fun and it's all that good stuff. But I, you know, very often it's more of a cultural exploration or it's a vacation and they may do one or two days of service. They might paint a building. There's nothing really valuable in that. And I think we have to really be much more stringent about what we're doing um, and what the messaging is that we're doing as well. So I think having students who are older who really want to invest as a priority, learning about community. Learning and I've seen schools do it well, where students really prepare, uh, where they learn about a need in a school and maybe they prep and they make games and they create teaching tools and they go there with an understanding. They'll work with local teachers and learn from and with them. You know, I think there's many ways this can be done well, but it cannot be done on the fly. Um, I've recently worked with a school in Senegal in Dakar, the international school there, and they're really doing. They're taking students to those. Uh, the communities, and they're all in Senegal, but they're taking students to the investigation and do the planning. They're creating real partnerships over time before they take larger groups into those places to do things. Just think about that, how much learning, if we, we kind of pull back the screen and let students be part of the planning of the operational aspect of this, of the logistics of thinking it through, that's where students can really learn, where they take on real roles and responsibilities to do something meaningful and do it over time, not just as a one-shot parachuting in and out. 
then we're really creating change agents who really know about community organizing and the depth of organizational change. So I think it's possible, but it requires commitment. It requires time, a budget, you know, things that yeah. schools have to prioritize this if they really want to make it worthwhile. Yeah, a hundred percent. And finally, is there any, what advice would you give to educators who aren't sure where to start when it comes to adapting the curriculum to integrate service? Um, I think particularly for teachers maybe coming out of the UK or, um, well, the UK is the only other place that I've worked. So I know that service isn't necessarily in the conversation that much at the moment with regard to the national curriculum. And then you find yourself in Hong Kong or Bangkok or Tokyo or Jakarta or wherever. And thankfully, service is a big deal, but maybe you're ill-equipped to, um, you know, adapt to that new challenge. Um, other than obviously your fantastic books, which um, I will link to in the show notes, what advice would you give to teachers in terms of um, how to best adapt to this challenge? Uh, well, thank you for mentioning my book, because I do think it's a great resource for people. People are still telling Certainly me they use it. Yeah. Valuable, which I'm so grateful for. Um, and I have uh, two other books I wrote with Philippe Cousteau, Jacques Cousteau's grandson on the environment that are also helpful to if people are going into that direction. Um, I think to really, when, when teachers apply for jobs, to make that part of what you ask. You know, I know people are being interviewed, but people should always be interviewers when they're applying for a job also. And asking how important is service at your school? I I don't have a lot of, they may even say, I don't have a lot of experience, but I'm really wanting to learn so that hopefully when they arrive there, there's a maybe a mentor um, or there's a workshop for teachers on how to integrate service learning into their curriculum. There's a there's part of the culture and the teacher is identified as someone who wants to be part of that. And I think that's a very important kind of identifi- and identifier. You know, in the same way, schools should use that question when they interview for new people. I arrived at a school once in, um, actually it was in, was it, it was Hanoi. I was doing some consulting and a fellow walked by me and I knew him from the 1980s. He was a real leader in service learning in Minnesota. And there he was at a school in Hanoi and no one knew that background of his. I made sure everybody knew it by the time I left because he was, he knew, he was great with service learning. He, so somebody's not asking these questions, I guess is part of it. And then as part of, um, orientation for new teachers, making sure there's a workshop that that gets people knowing what these terms mean, what it means at our school and how to get involved and building a support system for teachers so they can really start doing this in meaningful ways. Um, two of my colleagues, Shay Asensio and uh, Leanne Lavender and I created an online course. That's another way to get started. Uh, we have cohorts starting in July and in October. It's a, you know, a all these different modules that really give people a strong foundation in how to approach service learning uh, so that they feel more confident going into their classrooms and diving in. And, and one of the other things we have to realize is you don't have to be an expert in it to get started. Um, you know, learn what you can and then just start working it out and telling students, we want, I want to figure this out together with you. Let students rise to the occasion, let them be part of the, the voice and choice that that really moves things around and moves things forward and and just give it a shot really start trying it out and you'll see what works and what doesn't work pretty quickly but there's a lot of resources on my website i encourage all your listeners to go to the website which i know you'll link to so people can download a lot of things and learn about our course and um there's other people doing good work out there so find other articles other uh, youtube videos to watch and and just be part of the conversation 
Mm, yeah, excellent, excellent advice. I was particularly with regard to um, your own work, Kathy. I think that is an excellent place to start, but also not being afraid, as you said there, just to to understand that you know it's a learning process. You don't have to get it um, perfectly right the first time around. No. Um, right, obviously, you don't have to get it right. You just have to get it going. You just kind of yeah, exactly right. Yeah, because it's um, I mean, there's so much learning, and I think that's the other thing is we become learners, and students see us as risk takers. Yeah, and if learn done a lot through modeling, this is a great way to make it happen. Yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, okay. Well, I mean, the only thing that remains for me to say, Kathy, is thank you so much for giving up your time uh, today, but also more broadly and more importantly, thank you for being you know one of, if not the leading voice when it comes to service in, in the curriculum in, in, in the States and internationally. And yeah, it's been an absolute, I'm really thrilled to speak to you today. And thank you so much for everything that you do. Oh, thank you, Chris. And thank you so much for making this available to your listeners. It's pretty wonderful. Thank you.